Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Let's take a look at a quick video from the Ken Burns app. There is no such thing as history. The past and all time is just random events that take place. A chaos, and it's going faster and faster and faster. However, over the course of time, we see things emerging. We see not cycles, but patterns, interconnections, recurrence, things that happen that will happen again. Lift off of Space Shuttle Atlantis. And in some way, what we do with our films is to surround this chaos with some meaning. You know, if I told you that I had completed a film several years ago that was about the demonization of recent immigrant groups to the United States, that it was about smear campaigns during presidential election cycles, that it was about a whole group of people who felt like they'd lost control of their country and were now wanted to take it back, you'd say, you're talking about our current political situation. But these are part of a series we did on the history of prohibition. Patterns of the present are replicated all the time in the past. Human nature remains the same, repeating itself, superimposing itself over all sorts of different environments. So I've been making historical documentaries for over 40 years. And some of these films are super long. And so there are stories within these larger stories. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Mr. Armstrong. We've created a new app that will allow you to see history through a different lens. It's short clips from our films, grouped by theme and time, to see the way in which the collisions of a scene from this film and a scene from that film made 20 years apart suddenly interrelate in a new way. What this allows us to do is to see the ways in which the warp and woof of, of history um, has meaning today. In the case of history, it's all about ghosts. You walk through an empty city street, but you're passing through all the people who've walked through it at all times. They're ghosts and echoes of an almost inexpressibly wise past. That if you're aware, then history becomes that guide to the present and you are able to participate, not just in that moment, but in all moments.
Please welcome this evening's guest moderator from the Colbert Report on Comedy Central, Stephen Colbert. Thanks so much, everybody. Uh, happy to be here tonight. Um, and, and the reason is, is that uh, I've done uh, about over 1,300 shows. And that means probably about 1,700 guests at this point. And people often ask me, like, who are your favorite guests to have on the show? And there's, there's one thing that makes guests better than anything else, and that is just passion. I don't care what they believe. I don't care what they care about. The subject isn't even important to me. Mostly it's that they are passionately attached to what they want to talk about. They have an idea that they want to convey. And Ken Burns is one of the greatest people to sit down across a table with to do that. He doesn't just, you ask him a question, he doesn't just answer your question, he absolutely just burns on the subject. He is incandescent on American history. And every time I talk to him, I've had him on the show three or four times now, he, I just feel mildly singed on the side of my body that's facing him, as if I've been irradiated by his love of American history. And, and we're here tonight to talk about uh, Ken's app. So now we get the app, you, you can know what it's like to sit down across from Ken. I only get six and a half minutes on any given night when he's there, but now you've got, you've got hours of it at your fingertips on any one of the themes, subjects, or movies that he's got on this app. And uh, here to talk about it better than I possibly could, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the great Ken Burns. Sorry for not getting up. Sorry for not getting up when you came out. I have a mic that's got me prepared to play Piano Man. Yeah. <laughs> How have you been? How is history? Is history good? History, history is never better. Today's been a good day. Okay. Today? Oh no, this, when did this app drop, as we kids say? Yeah, well, we dropped this at 12.01 a.m. Tonight. Yeah. Tonight. Okay, so this is the first day no, of the day. No, no. Yes. Today. Monday, yeah. Monday. That, yeah, a while ago. Today, today, yeah, Monday. Yeah, yeah, like. Why, is this not live for you? Because yeah. this is live for me. I'm on Monday. If you're in the past, yeah, please yeah. join us in oh, the present. I, I, okay. Okay. okay why, why would a guy who spends his entire time <clears throat> thinking about the past and the patterns of the past want to do something that belongs in the future? <laughs> why did you want to do an app? You already have a medium. It's film. Okay, so as I was trying to say in that little thing, there's, I don't think that there are cycles to history. I don't think that you're condemned to repeat what you don't remember. But I do think that as the Bible says that there's nothing new under the sun. That's Ecclesiastes. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. That means that human nature doesn't change. And you begin to speak after you've worked for 40 years on films, and you begin to see some things that you want to talk about in a different way. History is mostly made up of the word stories. I've been telling a lot of stories for a long time, but you also realize that you can isolate these stories and rearrange them, that some themes emerge like race, like innovation, like art, like politics, like hard time, like war, that repeat themselves, not just in my films, but in the story of the United States. And PBS has allowed me for the last 35 years to put these films on, and this is a chance to sort of, it's like, you know, I've got all these albums and uh, I want to make a mixtape. I just, I, I'm not going to make you listen to every single one well, of the cuts on every track. Well, so generally you make a mixtape for the girl you're interested in. <laughs> who, who is the girl you're trying to seduce with this mixtape? Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Good luck with that, my friend. Good luck with that. No, no. Okay. It, but so you say a, these patterns you see, you say we're not condemned to repeat history. Even though you yeah. see patterns of repetition, those who, who what was it, those who That's George Santayana to... who said, apparently, that you're condemned to repeat what you don't remember. And I okay. just, I, I think that we are at a deficit if we don't know our past. Um, you know, when the 08 meltdown came, a lot of people said, oh, this is a depression. And I said, well, actually, in the depression, in a lot of cities in the United States, the animals in the zoo were shot and the meat distributed to the poor. Then we'll know we're in a depression when that happens. And so history and oh, your please, awareness I would of love it, a panda steak. Yeah, <laughs> right. I've been so curious, but it seems rude to ask. <laughs> I'm sorry. Please go ahead. You have you to were move being to Washington D.C. and wait. All right. Very patiently for your panda burger. Um, so show the. Do you, can you throw this up on the yeah. screen? Can yeah, you, I think can I you throw can. this up on the screen to see yeah. what so people so, have an idea of how this thing is navigated. Because I I love it. I haven't had to be able to spend much time with it because I have a job. But stupid show. <laughs> but I just love this. This is I got this right here. This is this first part is, is called the. This is the timeline. When you open up the app, you get this beautiful timeline. There it is. So so what we thought we'd do is we just this all of these little planets, if you will, and we can move in and you can see this wonderful parallax um, that we've created here that sort of sees time in different ways, but it's chronological down along the bottom. To the left, it's the earliest time. To the right, it's the most modern time. And then there are all these little moments here. And if you were to go a little bit wider and pull something down, it would tell you that that bite was one of two bites uh, on this timeline from a film Horatio's Drive. And you could then go and find out more information. You could go to download to own it at PBS or Netflix or iTunes or wherever you were going to get your film. Or you could take the same story and pull it up thematically and find out that that's part of one of several kind of mixtapes, curated um, playlists. Uh, on innovation, the others being race and war and hard times. Well, and let's art. take hard times for example. I'm yep. on hard times. You go to okay. hard times for a second. Here we okay. are. Okay, we've got the hard times intro, and then you're, you're grabbing pieces from many different documentaries that you've Out done. Out of time, too. So you remember Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, Billy Pilgrim, uh, yeah, yes, Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, the Trial Falmadorians, yeah. The Trial Falmadorians, exactly. And Billy Pilgrim is unstuck in time. And he sees things backwards and forwards. And it's sometimes interesting, as much as the single greatest thing you can do in telling a story well is go, and then, and then, and then. Adhere to strict chronology. Even those who violate it return to it. And it's the violation that's the exception that proves the rule. But in this case, it's possible because you're dealing with ideas and not the progression particularly of a story to put things that occurred, a film that was made 20 years before, uh, go bef uh, after something that uh, you just finished and have a new set of ideas What about unfolding. the chronology of the actual events as opposed to the chronology of when you made the events? When yes, you made the or films. the actual events too. So we're not in any strict adherence to chronology. We're in the interplay of these ideas. So as hard times, um, goes and unfolds, you're going forward and backwards in time as well as in films that I've done. So if I click on, say, what do you, let's click on the devast devastated baseball from Hard Times. Got it. I click on that and... Right, and then I hit it again and it will play from there. Now you could have played the whole By list. 1933, as Franklin Roosevelt began to implement his New Deal for the American people, the Depression had devastated organized baseball. Attendance dipped to its lowest levels in decades. 
Only the Yankees and a handful of other teams were profitable. So you could stop, right? And then go ahead to the next one, which is called Building Human Happiness. Franklin Roosevelt figures out a muscular form of government trying to deal with the effects of not just the Dust Bowl, but the Great Depression that is overlaying all Americans and essentially does a good job of it. The stimulus of the New Deal created all sorts of new institutions and electrified the country and built dams and changed things. So, Okay, so the, you, you, you have different snippets from different films. And all some of them have an theme. intro, okay. right? And they're, they're sort of put together and corralled into different themes. Aside from the fact that I want to go watch both of those documentaries right now. Right. Okay. Um, who did you make this for? If, uh, is this for liberals? <laughs> if, and if I'm not a liberal and I watch this, will I be a liberal by the time Ken Burns is done with me? <laughs> is this a liberal No, no, no. Machine? You know, what's so great is that I've made all of my films for PBS, and PBS is sort of presumed to be some blue state phenomena that adheres to the coast, but we have some of the highest ratings in Alaska and Oklahoma and Arkansas and West There's Virginia. nothing to do in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's also the fact that PBS often stitches those states together, that they provide more than just our extraordinary primetime schedule, which is the best children's, the best science, the best nature, the best public performance. I've told the best history and lots of other stuff, but they're doing continuing education. There are places where you get crop reports or you get homeland security stuff. So it's, a, it's, a, it's across the board. So this is for everybody. We have at pbs.org slash Ken Burns, we've aggregated all the individual websites from all the films that we've created into one sort of mothership, which C civilians, but also teachers and students can go into and cross-reference and get lessons plans and student guides and lots of just extraordinary content. You can this use is this in public, support of teaching. This is the public version of this, but this is also available to teachers as well if they want to use this and set up a, a, a discussion about hard times or innovation or any of these themes how or many, take one thing. How many films is this drawing from? This is drawing from the 25 plus films I've made since Brooklyn Bridge was released in 82. All 82. on PBS? Everything has been on is PBS. Is there any chance you're a Muppet? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. All right, you've definitely got a Kermit not. quality to There you. is a Kermit quality. Very friendly. Yeah. Yes, but not green. No, not green. Yeah. No, yeah. not no, green. No, no. 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 Similar eyes. <laughs> yes. Um, how, many, how many clips can we get on it right now? Well, there are, I don't, I don't think we've it's ever hours counted and hours. exactly. It's, it's hours and hours, but it represents maybe two or three percent of the total content. So if you sat down to watch all of my films, Wired Magazine, I calculated today, it was something like five and a half straight days uninterrupted. So this represents, just in this app, um, a fraction of this. But the cool thing about it is that we will continue to update it. We're making new films. I started to call one scene that's actually from the National Parks from the Roosevelt. So that's a film that is going to be released this September, which is a seven-part, 14-hour series on Theodore Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt that revisits some of this territory that we've done in several other films like Baseball or the National Parks. Is that what, when you got your crush on Eleanor Roosevelt you, making well, the documentary? It, this was the first thing that came to my mind. Which if you're thinking about getting girls, the girl I've been trying to get to know really well over the last several years has been one of the most extraordinary human beings that's ever lived named Eleanor Roosevelt. What can we look forward to in that? 
So what it is, is it's called the Roosevelt's an intimate history. I think people probably are aware of the fact that they were all born with the last name Roosevelt. They're yes. all related to one another. Um, her they, name was actually Eleanor Roosevelt Roosevelt. Her name was Eleanor were Roosevelt cousins. Roosevelt. They were the fifth cousins, uh, and Still. as he was of the... <laughs> Um, you will get all of the outer stuff, the political, the military, the social, all, all the hard times, all of that. But it's also looking at the central questions. I mean, we are debating today what's the role of government. That's the central questions in the Roosevelt. What can a citizen expect of its government? What is the nature of leadership? All three exhibit a very complicated kind of leadership. What is the nature of your own personal biography and the things that you overcome in order to become the great person that you are? What, what kind of uh, problems and traumas of childhood create you in good and bad ways? What is the nature of heroism? Is it perfection? Uh, obviously not. But it's also the negotiation between very obvious strengths. Sometimes it's not even a negotiation, it's a war between their strengths and obvious weaknesses, and that's what determines heroism. So I think what you're going to see is that um, this is sort of the classic PBS documentary on an incredible family which has influenced more Americans than any other family in American history, but it's also a Downton Abbey, which has two virtues. One, it's all true, which Downton Abbey is not. I'm sorry to break what? it to you. And it's made in America, <laughs> here. This is our Downton Abbey, and this is a very, very complicated family drama. Well, you say that there are patterns that, or common human desires or behaviors yeah, I think that common, overlay That's much better. The patterns, patterns is, is definitely true, and you see them almost visually, and you feel them uh, in ways. But I think it's the fact that there's human behaviors that are similar. Okay, so if I can, if I can, you know, go on to here and I can pull something from, say, your documentary on baseball, or a period of time during the Civil War and another period of time that takes place during the, the Depression. Yep. And there are commonalities. Where in the past do you think you find our own time best reflected? Where in American history have we been where we are right now? Well, I reflected? think it was interesting that in you know um, this wonderful group called uh, Red Glass Pictures, who are here, um, Sarah Klein and Tom Mason, um, came to my barn in New Hampshire and filmed me for a few days in front of a green screen, just talking about as many things. And what went into that introduction was essentially what I think we're very close to, which was the prohibition analogy, that we get distracted uh, by the conventional wisdom and the superficiality with which we deal with history. So when we say prohibition, we mean gangsters and flappers and something that's dangerous and sexy, which is true, but it's also about single-issue political campaigns, right-wing political campaigns that metastasize with horrible, unintended consequences. It's about the demonization of recent immigrants. It's about a whole group of people who feel like they've lost control of their country and want to take it back. And if I describe that, you'd say, you know, you've abandoned history. You're talking about a kind of current political dynamic right now. And so that helps you understand that we are living partly in an era in which Prohibition is reflected, partly in other eras. We've got men who are fighting and women who are fighting in foreign shores, and that obviously resonates as much as it's not front page news. So there's always some aspect of the past that might be a really extraordinary guide to this moment. And then, you know, Harry Truman once said, David McCullough told me, Harry Truman once said, the only thing that's really new is the history you don't know. 
which I just, I love. It just suggests that we think of history as this boring subject, but it's mostly made up of the word story, which we all love. It's what we all thrive on. Honey, how was your day? It doesn't begin, I back slowly down the driveway, avoiding the garbage can of the curb. Unless, of course, somebody runs into you at that point, then that's exactly the way you tell it. And we're all telling stories, and if you tell stories, this history comes alive and it reminds you not only where we've been, but where we are right now and where we might be going. Can you go back to the timeline yep. in there so people can see it on the screen? Yep. Okay. Now, zoom in a little bit so you get that parallax view. Yeah, how cool okay, is that? As you, as you go through and then you kind of, be, if you keep going, you get a sort of a three-dimensionality. Yep. Um, you feel like you're floating along with these historical events and seeing them in context. Is this what you see when you close your eyes at yes, night? It, yes, it is. Is, yeah. is your head one of the bubbles floating <laughs> through American history? You mean like Hillary last week in the New York Times magazine? Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, no. That was but, the, but it's the interesting. Uh, can the, I give... Hillary has scrotum yeah. on the cover. Of the, <laughs> uh, you yeah. said it. I just heard you say it. Um, so I need to give the props to Don McKinnon and to Sarah Botstein and to Drew Patrick and to Big Spaceship and to um, Red Glass Pictures who did this. And what they had to do is listen to my ranting. Since I've been a little boy, I remember trying to describe to my parents and I remember watching my mom and dad look at each other with this anxious sort of glance when I tried to describe how I saw numbers and history. That is to say, if, you, if, if you're asking me to visualize the progression of numbers from zero, they move and they have different shadings and they move away in a, in, a, in a pattern. If I move to not behind zero but behind 20, they do a different thing. The same thing with, with, um, with time. They have um, medicine for children now. Yes. <laughs> not when I was growing okay. up in the 50s. Yes. Um, so what this represents to me a kind of constellation, a kind of set of planetary moments where you're able to get at a little pearl that's there. And what's cool about this is that we can do tomorrow race two, three, four, and five. We could add a new category of leadership or government. We could suddenly say race ought to just apply to the African-American experience in America and that we ought to talk about difference um, for immigrants or for Native Americans. All have been huge themes of the, um, the Japanese-American internment that has figured prominently in three films that we've done, not because we're consciously looking for that, but because they're important elements of the those three films. The threads keep coming back to they that. They keep coming back. I've, no. I've passed through the 20s so many times in my life, and each time it's just a couple degrees off azimuth, and it's a totally different 20s. The 20s of jazz, the 20s of baseball, the 20s of the Roosevelts, the 20s of uh, prohibition, they're all different. They're all different 20s. They have things in common, and, and sometimes you reach out and you just sort of go, oh yeah, there's that moment, that's the same, it's Al Smith again. But mostly, it feels like a different 20s. When we just have, in this room, a, a very simple conventional sort of sense of what the 20s were. They're roaring, it's the jazz age, it's the precursor to the depression, it's prohibition, whatever it is that we hold on to is accurate, but not enough. Well, I like the metaphor of constellation because like the stars in the sky, I mean, they, they don't necessarily have a particular meaning until, let's say, the ancient Greeks, for sake of argument, go up and say, well, that's Cassiopeia. You are the ancient Greeks here, and the team of people worked on it. These are stars throughout history. 
we're seeing your constellations. That's we're right. seeing how Ken Burns sees history. That's exactly right. It's very intimate and personal, and yet I'm obligated by a certain responsibility to my network, to myself, to history itself, to tell something that's uh, accurate. Uh, it can be informed, certainly, however subconsciously, by my by my own prejudices or interests or biases or whatever. But I, th I like the idea of continuing on this is because in astronomical spaces, the way we actually fix points is through triangulation. And I think what okay. this does is a different kind of triangulation from the normal sequence of a story, from the normal sequence of narrative that I'm engaged with. And so this is another way to do it. And it, it, it be does become a kind of curated sense of, let's pursue this question of race. And so where's Ted Revive? He was uh, here. He, he would dig up all of these right there. He would dig up all the things. We probably have 1% of all the scenes on race that we could, we could have put in here. And so there's many more to, m to make. That's Ted right there. Where's Teddy? Oh, sorry. There, hello. Hi, it's Ted. Oh, it's my turn now. <laughs> um, speaking of seeing you know, history, the way Ken Burns does. What is it like that in iMovie, what is it like for you that in iMovie, <laughs> there's an effect called Ken Burns? Okay. Is that perhaps your greatest contribution so, <laughs> to the modern world? Something and you're immortal. You're immortal until you, they upgrade What the you program. mean is that I have saved so many bar mitzvahs and vacations <laughs> and weddings and birthdays? That's exactly right. <laughs> well, it's funny because um, I live in rural New Hampshire and have for the last 35 years. But when I'm um, in town, I, I've got an apartment. Uh, a few blocks from here, and I can come by here, and people will come out and start talking to me about the Ken Burns effect. And how did that come about? Well, so I got a call from Steve Jobs in December of 2002, and he said, "Would you Thud. come?" That's name dropping, boy. Yeah. Thud. <laughs> Would you yeah, I'll come? I'll take out? my call from Steve later. You yeah. Go okay. Ahead. You go ahead. Um, oh, then the medium is the message, right? Yeah. yeah yes. Because yes. if you can talk to him, that would be something. Um, he called no, me. No, I said, think Would it's you? a long time ago. <laughs> Keep going. Will you come to Cupertino? I want to show you something. So I did. And he led me into this room, and there were two other guys, and they had been working for some time, he said, on trying to perfect what was essentially a very simple pan and zoom uh, through images. And he said that the next month, uh, January of 2003, all Mac computers from then on would have this, and their working title was The Ken Burns Effect. So I said, well, you know, I don't do commercial endorsements, but um, he, he ended up very kindly giving, Apple gave a great deal of equipment and hardware, which I in turn gave to nonprofits uh, and educational institutions to do that. But I meet a lot of people who come up and say, you're the Ken Burns effect guy. And I go, yeah. <laughs> well, I also make document. Oh, you do? What are those? So if, if you are here because of the Ken Burns effect, if you will look, direct your attention to the bottom of this screen, you will find that there are 23, 25, 26, whatever it is, films here that I've actually spent the last mm -hmm. 35 plus years uh, working on. But what the Ken Burns effect, what he was looking at is that my desire to wake the dead my desire to take an inanimate photograph that represented a moment frozen in time, 
to trust that it had a past and perhaps a future, to look at it the way a feature filmmaker would uh, a, a master shot, that is to say, containing within it a long shot, a medium, a close, a tilt, a pan, a reveal, details and inserts, to add to it not just the third person voice of God narrator, but first person voices reading stuff from the past, a newspaper account, a letter that might bring it alive, a complicated sound effects track that would ask, were those cannon firing, were the troops tramping, were the horses neighing, were the ice in the bar and the jazz club tinkling, was the, you know, what was going on, and to add period music and try to wake the dead. And so this what was- What are a you like as a customer at a restaurant, <laughs> I want to know. Oh, I do, describe I never the salad to me? Is the frisee fresh? Is the goat cheese? Does it just flake off? Is the, are the almonds crunchy? I'm are so the cherries fresh? Does the, <laughs> do the bubbles sparkle in my water? Is, is, do I get a, oh, just a whiff of Lily of the Valley from the waitress as she goes by? And Is she here to act? Or, or, or does she live in New York? Is she the daughter of the owner of the restaurant? I made this for you, Stephen! <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm actually pretty easy in a restaurant. Really? But... but, but when you're, when I look, when I'm looking through that camera, really, when I, yes, when I look through that camera, I'm Ken Burns. I'll have water and hardtack. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, I I try to listen to the photograph as much as I look at it. Is there a part of is there a part of American history that you are most in love with, if I can use the word love? And no. can I use the word love? Yeah, oh yeah, because I think in fact, and it took me a really long time to realize it, and it sort of is awkward because nobody likes to say that word except in that kind of distance way that you just did it. But I think that all wow. the, f <laughs> I think that is really backhanded, ouch, man. Ouch, That's yeah. backhanded. I think all of the films are about love. I think that that is in in a way. Well, everything's the about love. Ingredient can. We can all, I can get deeper than you if you want. Oh yeah. Well, don't the Beatles. Try to I me, watched man. the Beatles. I love you. I love you too. I love you. Oh man, I love you so much, man. Uh, so go ahead. Yeah. No. So. Um, so you love all of American history. There's no part you no, love no, no, more than no, other. No. No. I. I. There are places that are are exciting, but they're also like corners that you want to get to enough. Anything that's pre-photographic seems to stop folks, and I like to get back there and do Lewis and Clark and figure out what kind of poetic license you can take or what kind of live cinematography you might supplant at the National Park. So um, I, I, I don't feel, I feel like I'm just trying to ask the same question. I feel that I ask the same question. Who are we in each film? And you never answer it, you deepen it. And so there's not a territory that's off limits. There's not. And it's interesting that I've spent a, t a lot of time recently, as I've described in the 20s and early part of the 20th century, but there was a time where it seemed like the only place I really liked to be was in the late 19th century. And, you know, and then I can tell you about films that come up to the present, like the Central Park Five that we've talked about, or baseball, or um, the Shakers. Um, we've had films that began in the early uh, 18th century, like the Shakers, like the United States. Lewis when you Clark. see the timeline in your mind, do you say, "Well, oh, there's a there's a there's well, that's I, a decade I've ignored. Yeah, we, that's I, a decade I, I really have even short I've spent the whole to. day going from one place to another, talking about this in various ways, and I realize that in the back of my mind has been this sense that, geez. <laughs> we got to go back and start getting more stuff. I mean, there's stuff that I've done, and there are films that I want to do. I mean, I know I'm working on seven films right now. Um, wow. Everything is plotted out. We do in PBS 10-year plans, and um, it helps because the fundraising is so tough. But Communist Party has 10-year plans. <laughs> yes, five-year plans. Okay. We're much more. You're twice uh, as communist. We're, we're twice as. <laughs> We're twice as yes. red, yeah. Go ahead, Chairman. So, <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I can't I'm go sorry. there. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Thank you um, very much. So we're already beginning to think about what are the nineteen, the 2020s about? What, what are we going to do for those 10 years? You're writing, Even though, you're writing documentaries about something that hasn't happened yet? <laughs> no, we're, we're talking oh, what about are you gonna what, do are the, then, what are we going to do then? So I'm, I'm just finished a film uh, called The Address about these dyslexic boys at a tiny boarding school in Vermont who for each year for 35 years have been asked to memorize and then publicly recite the Gettysburg Address. We're in the 150th anniversary. And Lincoln, in arguably the greatest speech in American history, um, talks about a new birth of freedom. And you can see these kids actually take this thing and crystallize something that's extraordinary just by the simple act of memorizing a 10-sentence, incredibly complicated two-minute speech. We just finished the Roosevelt, so we'll be out in the fall. Next year is a history of cancer called The Emperor of All Maladies and a biography of Jackie Robinson that I'm waking with David McMahon, who's not here, but my daughter Sarah Burns, who is here. Um, we're also opened our editing room and are about six, seven months into a mammoth series on the history of the war in Vietnam. And we're out in uh, Nashville shooting a history of country music, a big series as well. And we've just started shooting um, some of the folks who are a little bit getting on in age for a film on uh, the life of Ernest Hemingway. And that oh, takes you to 2019, 2020. And there's stuff that overlaps there. Um, Ernest Hemingway's father killed himself in Oak Park, Illinois, home of Frank Lloyd Wright, subject of a film with his Civil War revolver, subject of another film. And so the warp and woof of that is connected. But we're already beginning to assemble 50, 60 ideas that will at some point become the next 10-year plan. Well, I, speaking of the Gettysburg Address, I want to thank you. You asked me to do a reading of the Gettysburg Address, <laughs> along with many, many other yes, people. Please go to learntheaddress.org, all one word, learntheaddress.org. You will first find out a mashup that has every living president and lots of celebrities and people in media and business. And then next to it is, because we couldn't put it in the mashup, is Stephen's... Um, in my interpretation, my yeah. interpretation. This is a two-minute speech in which most of the people who've recorded, and now thousands of, of real Americans have now done it and uploaded their things, and there have been schools in Alabama and Utah and 90-year-old people and little kids, and um, Joe took his daughter and went to mm -hmm. Gettysburg, and they recited it on Little Round Top. Um, it's, it's, it's very cool, and we've asked everybody that if these kids with learning disabilities, learning differences like dyslexia and ADHD can do it, then you can do it too. And you can curse me for a few days when you scotch tape the Bliss version of the uh, Gettysburg Address to your mirror in the morning, but you'll get it and you'll then always have it, something we don't do in school. Well, I had to do it comedically because I can't read it straight without crying. It is. Like I get to, of the people, for the people, by the people, and I'm done. Yeah. I'm just cooked. Because I continually worry that that's our, not our, gonna last very long you know, for we, different reasons than at the time. One of our big funders is the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the head of it decided, geez, I should put my money where I'm at. And she actually memorized it. And in the course of reciting it, broke down and sort of started again. It's it's a very powerful address, and if you think about how it took place after the greatest battle that, that ever took place on American soil, 10,000 dead, 56,000 casualties, more than 185,000 soldiers involved in a tiny little orchard town, uh, county seat of Adams County in south central Pennsylvania, and four months later the president is asked 
to give some appropriate marks. He's not even the featured speaker. Edward Everett spoke for two hours, and he spoke for two minutes, and basically gave us a new catechism. Our original catechism, which is the second sentence of the Declaration, begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. But the guy who wrote that owned more than 100 human beings when he wrote it. Didn't see the contradiction, didn't see the hypocrisy, and more important, didn't see fit in his lifetime to free any of them, and set in motion an American narrative that would eventually lead to Gettysburg. And Lincoln came back and basically gave us the 2.0 version of the Declaration, which is the Gettysburg Address. And it's the operating system to just keep beating wow. this thing um, that we're, wow. we're working under now. It is. I mean, when the first anniversary of 9-11 happened, besides the desperately la uh, sad list of the dead, there were just a couple of speeches, none of them contemporary. One of them was Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Why? It has nothing to do with 9-11, except unless you accept the fact that words, which matter in our country, could be medicine, that they could heal, that they could be glue, that you could find some cohesion at a time when everybody needed that. And um, that's why when you watch these little boys who are at the school, which is the place of last resort, they've been bullied or marginalized, and they're spending three months trying to figure it out. And some guy can memorize it, but he doesn't have the meaning down, right? Another guy looking at it, it's like trying to interpret hieroglyphics. But he pushes through, and the day before, he's not going to do it. And all of a sudden, there he is at the gala with his hair spit back and a tie. What's and the name of this documentary? It's called The Address. The Address. And, they, and I've put the Gettysburg Address and the history of it in context, and the boys narrate the film And how in long between. before that's out? It's, it'll be out on April 15th. OK. We have time for uh, questions now. Is anybody? They, where the the Apple people are in control. I'm just <laughs> pointing. Hi. Um, so as you said, you're working on a number of projects uh, all at the same time. So when you're working on things like Vietnam or you know the address and uh, Hemingway, which you know Stephen did a great segment on Hemingway recently <laughs> on his show. He did indeed. Um, but does it get difficult to distinguish? distinguish, and if you're working on something like, let's say you're working on Vietnam, and you're thinking, oh man, I, I just had this great idea about Jackie Robinson. Yep. Does it get hard to go from one thing to another, or what's your process no, for that? No, I, you know, I have four daughters, and you know, I hear their voices. They're really distinct, each one. Um, <laughs> the, <clears throat> it's a really good question. I, do, I wear a lot of hats. I have to, I'm the executive producer. I have to raise the money. I'm producer. I'm the director. I'm often get a chance to do cinematography, less so now because of the other things. And I'm often a co-writer or certainly do a great deal of writing for them. And I end up in the editing room being the final arbiter of what the film looks like. These are hugely important tasks. But the best task I have, I think, is to be able to see the film new every time we start screening it in the editing room, to just be you, not me, but you. Let no idea what's coming next. And if you're working on a lot of projects, it really helps to be moving from one, you, I can come back into Vietnam so completely fresh that I can just see it and go, wait, I know how to fix this. And then uh, you know, we'll have a day-long sort of denouement from the two-hour screening in which we're rearranging stuff. And it, I am so excited that I don't sit on my chair. I get up on my haunches and will sit for hours on my haunches at the table with the writers and the producers and the co-director and you know, uh, the person. And we're, we're just making the film. But I'm too You're literally up. like up on your chair, on your toes, yeah. like Golem. Squat. Yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> me precious. Yes. Another question. <laughs> yes, right here. Pass that down to the young man. 
in the shirt. So I'm wondering, uh, for instance, for Huey P. Long, was there a certain instance that of Huey's legacy that inspired you to make the documentary? Uh, and I guess I can go with any of them. And then what do you think his greatest contribution was? Huey Long? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, just opening his mouth. If you're in politics in Louisiana, you know, the cardinal sin of being, uh, of, of a politician in Louisiana is being dull. And Edwin Edwards, who's I think spending the rest of his days in jail was a governor and uh, said the only way I won't be reelected is, is if I'm found in bed with a live boy or a dead girl. And he was reelected. Um, and he's very much in the tradition of Huey P. Long. It was interesting, that's the first time in my life, very early on in my professional life, where I did two things at once. I was working on a film on the Statue of Liberty and it was more than a full-time job and a professor from LSU came to me and said he'd just been turned down from a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities about a film about Huey Long and he sent me the thing and I said, let me tell you why, it's not really well written, I couldn't really see it. He said, well, will you work on it? I said, I'm really too busy. I had to fly someplace, he heard about it, he met me at the Atlanta airport with a three-quarter inch U-matic uh, thing to show me three-quarter inch videotapes and he put in this thing, and I'm like, okay, how do I tell this guy politely I'm not going to do it? And uh, Hugh, I saw Huey Long giving a speech. And it was so phenomenal that I just said yes on the spot. And it was just, he's this unbelievably interesting character who leveled all the liberties of the Republic, High F. Stone says in the film, but he also built roads and schools and bridges and, and made every person in Louisiana that was poor feel like they were a king, and that was his motto, every man a king. So he has this, you know, you know uh, Robert Penn Warren's, you know, great, great novel, All the King's Men, which is based loosely on the life of Huey P. Long. Willie Stark is a very different character than what Huey Long was actually like, but it is an epic operatic journey in both cases, in novel and in real life, and getting to know him uh, was fantastic. Um, mine's a simple question, so I just wanted to know, like, what's the greatest and most exciting discovery you've made through your research? I know you've done tons and tons of research, something like maybe you didn't know that it, shocked it, you. Listen, I've never made a film about a subject that I know. If that, when, when documentaries are telling you what you should know, that's called homework. But if you tell people what you yourself have discovered, then you're sharing with them a process of discovery. And so every film, what I love so much is people saying, I had no idea about it. Because then I say to them, neither did I. So you know, I, I, there's 10,000 things on each film that are so completely new and amazing. You know that um, the little town of Winchester, Virginia changed hands 72 times during the Civil War. In America, a town had military occupation shifting 72 times. Uh, that's amazing, you know, uh, to me. So uh, the leader of North Vietnam that our presidents, uh, Eisenhower, uh, Kennedy, and Johnson and Nixon felt was running Vietnam was Ho Chi Minh and led by General Zop, uh, G-A, G-I-A-P, pronounced Zop. Um, they were both marginalized, or, or at least not in control, by January of 1959. That is not a typo. 1959. They had a, both opposed Tet and were uh, briefly had their staffs arrested and were sent out of the country, though the recent obituaries for General Zop listed the fact that he was the architect of Tet. 
Uh, this is just new scholarship stuff. It's opening up to Vietnam. So this doesn't, and I haven't told you about the 100 interviews we've done with North Vietnamese, South Vietnamese, and mostly American soldiers. Each one of those American soldiers will tear your heart out just listening to their story of, of what they did. So it's, I mean, I've got the best job in the country. And the reason why is that every day is like that. You go, whoa, that's incredible. How do we get that in? Did you ever, have you ever found yourself in your research, like yourself, your own family, and going, oh, wait, I'm part of this story <laughs> in a personal way? Um, you know, I have a, a couple of times uh, when I was working on the Civil War, um, a guy that I had befriended and worked with for years at the National Archives and the Military History D Division sent me this stuff. He said, here's some papers I thought you'd be interested in. And um, I thought, why is he doing this? He knows we're like three quarters of the way through editing. There's no way we're going to put anything in. And it was about my great-great-grandfather, Abraham Burns, who fought with the Confederacy in Captain, Captain McClanahan's company of Virginia Horse Artillery and was captured at Moorefield in what would become West Virginia and uh, spent the rest of the war on his butt in Camp Chase in Ohio before he was released on March 11th or 12th, you can't tell because the pencil's smudged, uh, on City Point, Virginia, near the Fork of the James River. And it was like, exactly, I went, whoa, you know, and yeah. then... There's an app that does this. <laughs> <laughs> There's now an app that does this. Okay. I love you, you know. Uh, you are my, you, you are, I'm your big fan. I have strong so, affection for you oh, right sorry, now as well. But, <laughs> sorry, but today you are host. I'm not sure I can ask you a question, but I saw your Super Bowl commercial. I loved it. It was amazing. Oh. So my question is, do you my like pistachio? And, the, and, yeah, the, yeah, and yeah. the nut inside. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. So <laughs> my question is, do you like pistachio? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, let's go. Let's go. To, let's get two more. Let's get two more. Let's get two more. Uh, two quick questions for you um, about the process of how you make a documentary. Obviously, uh, you do a lot of films from the past, so the amount of footage is limited. Do you look at a um, when you're going to uh, make a documentary about a particular subject? You say, "This is all the film I have. Let me bring my story from here." Or do you say, "This is what the story." Um, that I want to make, and how do I go about the footage? And the second question I have for you is, I went to a talk uh, maybe six months ago uh, here with uh, Lee Daniels when he was talking about the butler mm -hmm. and why he kept or why he felt there was a responsibility to tell certain stories of the past um, and to use his medium as a way to teach people. Do you? How do you think? Uh, documentaries fit into that kind of spectrum and being able to use it as a didact didactic you know, I, medium I, um, I, relative to other things. I, I originally wanted to be a feature filmmaker. I, from the age of 12, I wanted to make films. I, my mother had died of cancer when I was 11. I'd watched that process take place for nine, 10 years. Um, my dad had never cried once, but he had a pretty tough curfew, but he'd let me stay up to watch movies on TV or he'd take me out to movies on school night, we might get back at 1 a.m. And I watched my dad cry, uh, a movie called Odd Man Out about the Irish Troubles with James Mason. And, and I suddenly understood what the power of film it had given him a space to express emotions that weren't necessarily about the uh, problems in Ireland. Um, and I vowed right then and there I'd be a filmmaker, but I thought it'd be a dramatic filmmaker. 
And so what I've learned is that there's as much drama in what is and what was than anything the human imagination makes up. But we're all bound by the same laws. Lee Daniels and I obey the same laws of storytelling. Um, he can make stuff up if he wants to. Um, but but I, th I think with regard to your first question, first part of your question very simply is that you try to work with what you have. And you just accept it. You're drawn to a subject not because it's got a, a lot of stuff or very little. There's one photograph of John Roebling, one photograph of the man who built the, the Brooklyn Bridge or designed the Brooklyn Bridge, not built it. And we just had to go with it and just use it in different ways. And we found different prints that in different decay and blow up and all sorts of stuff. And, and we just made it work somehow. I think we made it work. You'll be the better judge of that. And so we're, we're willing to go in. But I think we're obligated, particularly when we tell our stories, to tell the common stories we have. I mean, it's one of the motivations of this app right now. And in the United States, race is a huge, huge, huge thing. And it always has been. When Thomas Jefferson said those words, he made sure that it would be. Because he did, wasn't counting that four score and five years later, there'd be four million Americans owned by other Americans. And people try to disguise and say, oh, it's not about that. It's states' rights, or it's economics, or it's social stuff, like that. But read South Carolina's Declaration of Secession after Lincoln was elected. They don't mention states' rights. They don't mention nullification. They don't mention cultural differences. They don't mention economics. They mention slavery many times in this document. And that's what it's about. And, you know, we've got to be dealing with these questions all the time. And, and I don't go looking for it. I don't think there's a film, maybe Frank Lloyd Wright and Horatio's Drive didn't have some aspect of race in it. You don't go looking for it, it's just present in American life. It's one of the, the important sub-themes. So, you know, particularly in this last few years, we've really grappled with it as we struggled with a presidency of an African-American that has caused an, a huge amount of disturbances in people across the land. And, and people like to pretend that we're in some post-racial world when we're actually not, so we have to invent new code words. You can't say the N-word as blatantly as you did before, a couple generations before when I was growing up. You heard it more often, though I hear it more recently a lot. But you have things like birther, or you have, you know, he's not born here, he's Muslim, or something that makes him other, another way of saying, you know, take a look. Um, and it makes it, it, it makes the dynamic of our country um, almost powerfully tragic in a way. We're, we're obligated to come to some terms, and we are actually doing it. We've made huge strides and huge progress, and those who gainsay that are missing the point. But we, we, we actually have to remember, you know, Chris Rock said, I am a millionaire, and you would not, looking at his white audience, trade places with me for that money. And he's right. My first question is going to be about pistachios, but that thunder's been stolen. So, uh, you've spoken a lot about history not being this dry thing, this kind of incorporeal thing that we teach our kids. And I'm really interested to hear after you speaking about love. I know there's a lot of joking going on there, but there's something serious there that, that motivates yeah. both of you. So I'd like to hear from from both of you what stirs that passion more deeply in your in your view of the human race, in your view of dignity, and all these things. What is motivating in your heart, whether it's whether or not it's a message you want to share with your audience, but what is that, that question you're trying to ask about us as human beings? Well, I, I, that is, you know, the question of the ages. There's not an appropriate answer, and Stephen will have his own as well. The, as, you, as you get deep into the work, and in order to make these histories, you, you, you do a, a, a mechanics, you know, you take things apart, you get down to very elemental levels. 
And what finally you, f you realize is that what's drawing you to it, what the finer aspects of it, even though it may be a dreadfully sad or terrible story, uh, has to do with love. And then you begin to realize that that's part of the mechanics of the universe. Um, that's very soupy and it doesn't, it doesn't really find traction except that it does. It's, it's, you know, when people say in music that it's not the notes, but the intervals between the notes, what they're talking about is something, something that isn't there. You know, we, we're after this Higgs bosom, you know, the God particle, supposedly. Um, it's, there's just this sense that that's what it's about, that comes out of that, what animates the passion or the enthusiasm. You know, Stephen had a very gracious introduction, and he talked about a kind of passion, and another word is enthusiasm, and the Greek word for enthusiasm is God in us, and that to be enthused is to sort of be inspirited by something. And I think that that ingredient is love. And it's very awkward to talk about. It's very difficult to talk about because you have to sort of get on a footing and everybody has to suddenly agree that it's going to be some other idea of what love is. But when I get up in the morning, I don't think about that. I think about trying to tell a story a little bit better. So in many ways, the luxury of having this stop here this evening is just that, a tremendous luxury, a chance to, to be with somebody whose work I respect, to be with you, who I'm so pleased that you've come out. I hope you enjoy this thing. But at the same time, it allows you then, like this app a little bit, to distance yourself from the flow of stuff and say, yeah, I think it may be about that. But if you spent your time at that degree of navel gazing, you'd never put two shots together, let alone an 18-hour series on the history of baseball, well, I'd like which is about love. My, my state motto, South Carolina, and you're welcome. You're welcome from South Carolina. You're welcome for everything we've given to you. Are you seceding from this evening now? <laughs> no, no, no. You're welcome for your entire documentary, The Civil War. <laughs> yeah. First to go. Our state motto is Dum Spiro Sparrow, while I breathe, I hope. And I love the idea of inspiration of like is spirit obviously, but it also means breath to be in to breathe in. You breathe in something, and you are breathing in history. You're in it. You breathe in, and you are inspired by it. And um, that's what I admire about what Ken does. And if you want a brief explanation of why I think love is important to what I do, is that I'm doing a character. I mean, when I'm doing my show, the best I'm doing a character who's interested in things. He wants you to agree with him because he wants you to love him. He wants to be loved more than anything else. Before every, for every show, we play the song, I Want You to Want Me by Cheap Trick. <laughs> and I said, before the show, I've got to hear it every, like, I want you to want me. Because, like, what's every character want in every Shakespeare play? They want to be loved, you know? And my character is not Shakespeare, but boy, he just wants to be loved. And he wants you to be on his side. He really, that's why he's terribly, he's terribly worried that he's alone. And, and that's why he gets so angry and lashes out so quickly is that he thinks he, no one likes him at all. And so, uh, and from my point of view, I love who working who I work. I like, I, I love the people I work with and I love how hard it is. I, I'm, I'm grateful for how hard it is. We did two shows tonight. One of, one of the uh, things we did, I've got something to do tomorrow. We did two of my shows in one night and we do 160 of them a year. And I'm very grateful for the amount of love it requires to do that, because if you didn't love it, if you didn't have some joy in it, it would just kill you. And so I'd rather it be hard than easy and with Amen. no love. Amen. No love. But it, and I am so inspired to have been here 
tonight with Ken. Thank you for asking me to do this. Thank you for introducing me to this. And thank you for everything you've given all of us about our history and what we can learn to love about our own country, warts and all. Warts and all. Ken Burns, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.